Here's what all the texts are listed for you. There's a, a collection of them on the back page of your bulletin. It's from Proverbs. So what, what we've been doing is looking at God's wisdom for how to live well in God's world, but specifically on how to live well together in community. And I've called this sermon this morning, God's Wisdom for Dysfunctional Families, because as soon as we hear about how it's supposed to be, we, we're confronted with the reality that's not, that's not how it is. And so we need, we need help to get there. And I... We're going to talk about family, we're going to talk about marriage, we're going to talk about all, all different aspects of it, and so I just want to encourage you, you don't have to be married or have children for this to be helpful to you. If you're a human, you've come into existence because of other humans, you have parents, and so there is wisdom for all of us here this morning. And so let's read this. Let's read God's Word and pray. This is God's Word. It says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the lengths of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. A foolish son is a grief to his father, and bitterness to her who bore him. So train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. His children will have a refuge. This is God's word. I don't know what I did, but this is God's word. It's true and trustworthy. And given in love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we all, we all live in families. And so we thank you that as a, a good father, you know what it's like to stubbornly, well, to parent stubborn children. <laughs> to, to parent those who don't want to listen. We, we thank you for being a faithful spouse who knows what it's like to be in a difficult marriage. And because of all this, you have things to teach us in your word. So we ask now that you send your spirit to give us your wisdom as you promised. And above all, show us Jesus, uh, the living picture of what wisdom looks like. And we ask now that you would make our families a refuge in Christ's name. Amen. So I have this uh, vivid memory when I was in sixth grade playing outside. 
And when I was in sixth grade, we were in Havertown. We lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I don't remember what I was doing. I was just playing outside in the snow, minding my own business. And along came a neighbor kid on his, on his bicycle in January for some reason, just because he could. Right? And so you got to picture this. Me and my sixth grade self, uh, probably if you sneezed, I would blow away. I was maybe 100 pounds. And this kid on the bike could have been, uh, he was in eighth grade, but he definitely could have been a linebacker. He was bigger than me. And for some reason, in my uh, brilliant mind, right, the synapses fired, and I started making this beautiful snowball, right, target practice. And all I remember, I can still picture it in my head, it was just a perfect throw. I mean, I just wanted to harass him, not even come close. But he's riding away, minding his own business, and here it goes, and about as it reaches the peak, then wisdom kicked in and said, oh, no, <laughs> he's bigger than me. What if it hits him? Which it did, square in the back at the other end of the block. And uh, I did the, the smart thing. I ran to my refuge in my home, locked the door, and didn't tell anyone. <laughs> right? and it's, a, it's a silly example. He did get me back. I got to kick me sign at school the next day. <laughs> but home was safe. And that's really the point is that we just read in Proverbs that your home as a family, uh, as Christians, is designed by God to be a refuge, designed to be a safe place. It's designed to be a place where uh, you find peace from your anxieties elsewhere outside of the world. And uh, that's, what God, that's God's wisdom, that those who fear the Lord, their home, their family, is a refuge. It's peaceful. It's like a fortress. There's all these great words in the Bible for refuge. You know, a, a castle that no one can break into. Uh, arrows can be fired at the fortress at your home and you can take a nap because you're at peace. You know you're safe. Uh, you're welcome. And that's such a beautiful image of family that I want to use that to hold all these Proverbs together because I think that's what Proverbs is getting you to do, is to say that those who fear the Lord, if you have a family that fears the Lord, parents and children, it makes your home a safe place because God is a safe place. He is our refuge. And so it's just a great question to ask as we start. Is your family a refuge for your spouse, for your kids, for your neighbors? And yet I know even as I ask that, um, there's a reason I call this sermon God's Wisdom for Dysfunctional Families because sometimes we run home and we get kicked out. We just have, families are difficult. It's chaos. And so that's why as we read these, the, the wisdom of Proverbs is pleading with you to listen to our Father in Heaven's teaching. We, we need God's wisdom to help us navigate the chaos of our dysfunctional families, our social relationships. And so think of this as a trajectory, because Proverbs are, that's what they are. It's, if you listen, this is what your life will become. And wisdom is different than law. Law says do this right now. Wisdom is a trajectory that uses the law to help shape your life. And so what we're going to do this morning is just paint the biblical picture of a family. And it's, it's a beautiful thing, but I also know that it's a painful thing. And so we'll end with the, pic the picture of family that the Lord's Supper gives us. And so let's start with the foundation of the family. 
And uh, this is my first point. If you're taking notes, a family refuge is one that is founded on an, what I'm calling an intoxicating marriage. That's, the, that's what Proverbs 5 uses to describe it. That, that the basis of the family is a marriage. And the basis of a, of a safe family are a husband and a wife. Just to say it simply, they like each other. Uh, they're, they're, they're friends. Right? And so if you go all the way back to the beginning, this, isn't, uh, this is just how God designed the world. The very first family, it didn't start with kids and then put Adam and Eve and say, here, you deal with these guys because they need, they need stewards. They need someone to look after them. It started with a marriage. Adam and Eve. Right? And the first family came when God gave Eve to Adam. And the first thing Adam said about his wife is an intoxicating thing. He burst out into poetry. It said the Hebrew version of, wow. <laughs> right? so they're, they're naked and unashamed. He, he enjoys his wife. And the Bible is not ashamed to say those things, even as I'm trying not to be. <laughs> right? And he says, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, at last you are the one I've been waiting for. That's the foundation of marriage. And as we start with this, this picture, the intoxicating marriage, you'll find in your own experience as you talk to your neighbors um, that the Bible's view of marriage is radically different than a traditional culture or even our modern one. Because in traditional cultures, you don't get married for this intoxicating, romantic experience, this delight of the body. In traditional cultures, it's, well, you get married for the sake of the family, for the sake of the children, to, to raise responsible citizens who will then help build into the community. Right? That, that's a part of the Bible's vision, but it's not the only reason. Right? I mean, just think about the, the movie Fiddler on the Roof. When do Tevya and his wife start singing, Do You Love Me? It's 25 years into the marriage. Right? That's a traditional culture. Right? And so in traditional cultures, divorce is really difficult. Marriage is more of a business arrangement. And there's just a lot of cultural pressure to stay together for the sake of the family. When you get to modern cultures, it's where we live, it's not about the children. Children, um, yeah, it's not the focus. We get married because of love. <laughs> that feeling of intoxication, uh, being Twitterpated, uh, to use the words of Disney. You know, that, that delight in each other's bodies. We're not ashamed in the modern culture to say that. And in modern cultures, children are optional. Divorce is easy because we say, I promise to love you until my feelings change. And that's the world we live in. And so in a modern culture, the difficulty of marriage, especially the Bible's picture of marriage, as we're going to get into. But let me talk to the older generation. This is the world our kids are growing up in, and as parents, right, where they see parents who don't get along, parents whose love turn to hate, um, and they're just terrified of this thing we call marriage because they've seen it not work. And so they're stuck in this longing for a relationship of permanence, of someone who will love them, and afraid that my feelings will change and I just can't, can't do it. And so that's where, in the midst of that kind of dysfunction, the Bible's picture, Proverbs' picture, really, of, of marriage is so helpful. To, to, get, to catch a vision of the beauty of the biblical marriage. And you get three descriptions and some practical advice here. 
First, it's supposed to be intoxicating. It's Proverbs 5. It's a great word, right? You need a 200-proof spouse. Uh, burns on the way down. I mean, just embrace the metaphor, right? If the literal Hebrew word is you just can't walk straight. That's what your spouse is supposed to do to you. Right? And so find yourself staggering drunk, enjoying the presence of your spouse's love. That's, that's the idea. It's a joy picture, right? And so I am not saying, to be clear, pastor said get drunk with your wife and, and that'll fix your marriage. That's not what it's saying. It's a metaphor, right? Take this literally, please. Oh, it's, it's saying, re use the rest of the, the proverb, rejoice in your wife. Enjoy her and flip it around. Rejoice in your husband. Um, I mean, it, really what it's saying from the perspective of a child, a child wants to see parents who enjoy one another, that laugh together, that, that apologize in public. You know, all these things where they see you are on the same team. Right? And I know this, this picture in Proverbs, I mean, it makes us, right, if this was a youth group, everyone would be giggling. Um, the Bible uses words to enjoy your spouse that make even our, our porn-guzzling culture blush. But one commentator described it this way. He says, this is, what you need, this is the way you need to see your spouse. Be deliciously dazed in the ecstasies of physical intimacy, probably because he's too embarrassed just to say, enjoy the physicalities of your spouse. Right. And so this is the Bible's foundation that... that the husband would enjoy the wife, the wife would enjoy the husband, and your spouse is designed by God to be like a well that you enjoy drinking from, a fountain of intoxicating love. Right. So it's just a practical question. Do you laugh together? Are you still able to laugh together even as you've hurt each other? Which leads to the second point. You know, in Proverbs 2, as you look at this picture of marriage, it talks about one that falls apart. I mean, part of wisdom is you want to be intoxicated to protect you from temptation, from the adulteress. And the adulteress is someone who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, which is another way of saying this intoxicating marriage is designed to be a friendship. The companion of her youth. The companion is just another word for intimate friend. And since we just did a whole sermon on friendship, I would say take what we said there and apply it to your marriage. But, but what you need in marriage, according to the Bible, is not just the physical desire. You need a friendship. I need a friendship. You need to learn how to cultivate a friendship. And, and because we're not very good at doing that as modern people, we, we get intoxicated physically, is what young people do. They're attractive, we, we don't know what to talk about, so we make connections physically, and then all of a sudden, you're living together before you get married. And the Bible's picture of marriage is one where you become friends. It's, ground, it's built on friendship. And so part of being a friend is where you, you get to live together with another human being closely. Uh, this is the wisdom of C.S. Lewis. He calls it being on a shared quest being on a journey together with a, the same goal in mind, which is another way of just saying you need to have the same faith. Both a husband and wife are friends who both fear the Lord, to use the Old Testament language, whose desire and goal and aim is to get to heaven, to see Jesus together, to fight sin together, 
to work on your sanctification together, which is a big way of saying when God wants you to be nicer, he gave you somebody to, to show you that you're not nice. <laughs> and so just imagine a relationship where you don't have this joint truth to join you together. Imagine this kind of conversation with your spouse. Do you see the same truth that I see about Jesus? That we are in the midst of this beautiful story, this great story, it's God's story, where we are in the midst of a fearsome war against evil, the shadow of evil that's invaded the world to enslave us. And I can't win that battle without Jesus. I can't fix my selfishness apart from Jesus. I can't find joy without Jesus. I can't do anything apart from Jesus, to quote John. And if, if the person on the other side of you doesn't say, I don't see Jesus, if they say, I don't see Jesus and I don't care, but I still want to be friends, that puts a, a giant barrier with, in the midst of your relationship. Because now the other person has all the pressure to bear the weight of being intoxicating. C.S. Lewis put, those who are going nowhere, if you have no goal, if you have no destination, you can't really have a fellow traveler. And this is really profound. I mean, just to build on everything we said about friendship, it's saying you need to aim at more than just being friends. You need to be Christians together. Have a friend, a spouse, someone who will go to war with you against your sin and your selfishness. And this, like I said, this is just a roundabout way of saying God has called us to be friends with him, but he gives you a friend to fight this war together in marriage. Right? And for that to happen, right, for that to be cultivated, for that to grow, you have to start and say, this is my goal. I want to be friends with my spouse as we are both friends with Jesus. Um, the second thing you'll find is it requires time. I am better friends with my wife now than I was nine years ago. Yeah. I need to make sure I do the math right. This is recorded. <laughs> Should have written that one down. Oh, because what you do as you grow in friendship, it's, it's like, well, here, do you know why Lewis uses these images of journey and quest and, and it's all war and all these things? It's because he, he, he cultivated friendships in the midst of World War I in the trenches. Friends are those who fight beside you. They don't run away when things get difficult. Uh, they, they're willing to carry you. They're willing to turn back and pick you up and say, I'm not going to leave you behind. Um, they're willing to die for you. Take up your cross. And so the way friendship grows, you have the physical intoxication, but you also have the friendship. As you go through conflicts together, love becomes stronger. You have scars from wounding each other, but they heal, and you can look back and see God's faithfulness in carrying you through it. Uh, you, so this is the, God's wisdom. He gives you a friend to help you grow and, and to live in this life, to deal with grief and to, and to enjoy life together. And you grow not by staring at each other, but by fighting with them, by arguing with them, <laughs> but also by reading the scriptures with them, by... By praying with them. And this is a tall task. It's hard. But Proverbs is showing you you need a friend and also you need the, the intimacy. 
And then third, what makes this possible is the covenant. Proverbs 2, 17. Right? The marriage that isn't safe, the one where that causes anxiety, is one where the spouse forgets and ignores the covenant. And what, the way a covenant marriage works is where you say, I promise to stay your friend, to stay with you, I should say. I promise to enjoy you even while you're not enjoyable. <laughs> my promise that I make on my wedding day is that I know my feelings will change and I'm going to stay despite my feelings. It's covenant. Right? Our marriage isn't based on my feelings, so I'm, you're free to say to each other every day, I'm not going anywhere no matter what happens. And that gives you the safe space, so to speak, to work on the friendship. And as you work on the friendship, the, the intoxication stuff will follow suit. You start to enjoy one another. And that takes time. Because God is content to take decades to teach us these things. And so, a family that is safe is based on an intoxicating marriage between friends who promise not to leave nor forsake one another. And I know that makes us feel bad because that's hard. <laughs> some of us aren't married and we want to be. Some of us are single. Uh, some of us are struggling to be friends right now. These things go in seasons. Right? We've got work to do. We're more familiar with the mess than this ideal that, that wisdom paints for us. And so I just want to encourage you with the gospel. Right now, you in Christ already have this intoxicating marriage. Jesus' friendship with the church. His bride. And if you're a believer, that includes you. That's such a beautiful image. Jesus who says, I'm not going to leave you. I know this is messy. I'm going to teach you to be faithful. My delight is still in you, even though you aren't there yet. And he's still able to look at the church like the bride who has no flaw. Because he, he died to make us righteous. Right? I mean, that's, that really is the, the foundation, the fear of the Lord, a, a well to draw from. You need the intoxicating marriage with Jesus. And it has to be personal. It can't just be in your head. To get the strength, the energy, the, the perseverance to forgive again and again. To know that there is a truth outside of your marriage that is true regardless of what your spouse thinks about you. Right. It's a beautiful thing. Lean into that. And so practical advice. This is Proverbs 31. How do you get there? Well, use Jesus' marriage as an example. What does Jesus do? He praises his imperfect spouse. <laughs> it's such a beautiful thing. And it's so simple. And I know as men, this is hard for us to speak our feelings. I'm speaking personally. To, to praise your wife. To say things that are kind. You know, when she does something well, to tell her. And vice versa, right? I'm not just talking to men. It's, it goes both ways. But in Proverbs 31, right, this is what the husband does. And the children, they rise up and, and praise the wife. And that's something... It's just a really simple way to start. If you say, I don't know how to build a friendship, if I don't know how to apply these principles, just start by praising your spouse in front of your children. And that goes a long way. And even in a mess, right, in broken homes, one of the things Jesus teaches you to do, right, start to pray for your enemies. Right? Even if you're separated, 
Pray for the one who's the parent of your child. And this is hard. Praise them to the best of your ability. Sometimes it might just mean just being quiet. <laughs> That's progress. But the wisdom of Christ's marriage with the church is he praises an imperfect spouse. Now, it's, that's the foundation, right? A, a home that's a refuge starts with a par uh, parents who like each other, who are a husband and wife. And you have to learn to do that before you think about yourself as a parent because the kids will leave. And, and if you don't have a friendship to lean on, that's uh, going to be hard once the kids leave. Right? So, second point, a family refuge requires parenting. And there's, there's more here than I can say, so I'm just going to pick a few highlights but Proverbs makes quite clear that after you get married and this thing happens, you have children. Uh, they, they start out cute. We've all seen Samson. Right? He's a cute little guy. But in, that, in the heart of my child, says Proverbs, is folly. He learns to walk. He will learn to walk. And he's going to approach stairs as a challenge to fall down them and hurt himself. <laughs> right? Fire. Oh, let's put my hand in the fire. Right? Little kids, you learn quickly. They don't know how the world works. And so God then, to change us for our good, gives us children. And if you're, you're single and you don't have children, he gives, he gives you the church where you get to, to hang out with children. Right? But Proverbs twenty two fifteen, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Which is another way of saying this parenting thing has to happen. We have to discipline. Uh, we, we have, God has a purpose in mind when he gives you children, and that's to train them to love God with all their heart, to love God with all their soul, with all their mind, and to love their neighbor as themselves, and to see that they can't do that, and to see that they need Jesus. Right. That's that's where Proverbs 22.6 comes in, right? Your, your job now is to train them the way they ought to go. And so when they're old, they will embrace it. And I know as I say that, and this is why we talk about dysfunctional families, children, you got to take the wisdom and hold them together. Because Proverbs says, in general, your kids will become like you. And in general, if you talk about your faith, God loves to work in families, and, and kids will follow in the footsteps of their parents. That's why it's good news when, when someone gets converted and they start a whole new Christian family because God is working through that family. But you also have all these Proverbs that talk about the way foolish children break their parents' hearts. And so you need both. Because as soon as you separate them, uh, it starts to treat kids like... Well, like little machines that all you have to do is use a rod and they'll turn out okay. And that's not the wisdom of Proverbs. Right? This is generally how God works. And how, how does the training happen? And this is, this is what I want to focus on. I say, one, it happens, it just happens. Right? Your kids become like you just by hanging out with you. And this is the terrifying thing of parenting where you say stuff under your breath, and 30 seconds later your child is saying it not under their breath, probably to someone else, and your face turns red. So, oh no, I did say that. Right? Because your kids want to be like you. 
And even when you correct them, they're still sad because they want to be like you. And this, and the hardest part for us as Christians when we parent in a secular world, and this is where I want to aim at, is, is the secular world, we live in a culture where you're, you're able to train your children to be good citizens, to be nice to one another, but you're not allowed to train them. Uh, it's frowned upon to tell your kids what to believe. And so we'll, we'll be told, right, just let them figure it out on their own. Right? Let their kids make their own religious decisions because it doesn't really matter anyway. It's all, right, it's, it's preference. Which, by the way, is pe- teaching children a particular worldview because only us 21st century Westerners see that about, about religion. But when you live in that world, it's really easy to take a back seat, to be passive. And so this is where I really want to challenge your view of parenting, is your kids are learning about God first just by watching you. You're training them. And, and that's where Proverbs comes in and says, let's be intentional about it. You have to use the rod of discipline. Now, what does that mean? The rod is a scary thing. Um, right? I mean, I mean, you've ever had that experience where you say, I, I think I need to spank my child, but I'm in a grocery store and I don't want someone to take my child from me. I know I'm being recorded. <laughs> right? Because now, culturally, we're being told you, corporal punishment is wrong. It scars children. And the older generation says, I turned out fine. And the younger generation, right, they say, well, I'm scarred for life from that one moment where I was punished. <laughs> and so what do you do with this? Because the Bible does say, it, it does give permission to do corporal punishment, to correct, uh, to, to discipline. And yet, you also have this other tool in your toolbox, because I think this is what happens, is if we say the only tool in my toolbox is to correct my kids, is negative and, and physical punishment, um, you're, you're going to do this thing that Paul calls exasperating your kids. Because not all your children respond to discipline in the same way. Right? In my family, the joke is, um, all you had to do was look at my youngest sister and she would just melt. Right? She has big eyes like, my, like Talitha. And you looked at her and said, you did something wrong, she would melt. And so what happens if you use, say, I have one way of parenting, and that's, that's the rod. It's going to exasperate your kids because it's overkill. You're going to crush them. And so Proverbs' wisdom for parenting is not uh, one-dimensional. It's saying you teach your kids by living. Most of your discipline is just talking to them, telling them what you expect, uh, positive, that you are sitting under God's discipline right now, and it doesn't hurt. Hopefully not too much, right? It's, it's God's wisdom telling you how to live in God's world. And then the, the flip side, we're also called to correct, to restrain the folly in our children's hearts. Because um, the rod is much more about the authority that God has given you to tell your children that that is not right. You cannot gnaw on your, child, your, your brother's ankle, right? That's savage. Don't do that. And as you get older, you teach them. Don't text and drive. Love God. Believe the gospel. That's parenting. 
And that's actually one of the ways you make your home safe is you actually engage intentionally with your children and parent them. It's, pers- it's purposeful. All right, so this is a good question to ask. How many parenting tools do you have in your toolbox? Do you just have the one, yelling? Or the rod? Or timeouts? I mean, there, it gives a lot of freedom on, on to figure out this parenting thing based on the personality of your children. Because the goal right, is to restrain the folly in their hearts so that they might believe and trust Christ. Be a good discussion starter later, but I have to leave it there. Now, I want to talk to kids briefly, and then we will finish here. Because a family refuge requires parents who like each other, parents who are willing to engage. Right, kids, do you hear uh, what the Bible says about you? (laughs) It says you don't know everything, that folly resides in your heart. And that's okay, because you are a child. That's how God made you. We, we, I'll put it this way. The Bible, what the Bible says about your heart, the Bible also says the same thing about your parents' heart. I have to tell my kids, this is part of teaching and training, daddy is a fool. I got, I got angry, and I shouldn't have got that angry. Forgive me. Right. And so when your parents tell you no, it's because they love you. And in fact, God's word says if they don't tell you no, it's because that means they, they, they hate you, they're ignoring you. It's an act of love to be told no, that you cannot have cotton candy for breakfast. Because your parents know more about nutrition than you do. <laughs> and, and even more so in bigger things. Now, if you have those pictures in your head of what the family ought to be like, and folly resides in every human heart. How do you build a refuge at home? And, and there's one more tool in the parenting toolbox and, and the marriage toolbox that we haven't talked about. And that's, that's the fear of the Lord. Because that's the only way. You look at Proverbs 14:26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, security, safety, and his children will have a refuge. And the Old Testament way of talking about the fear of the Lord is saying that the way... God's parenting toolbox, the main way he parents, is grace. It's always grace. It's the security of grace. You are his child, and he's not going to leave you alone. Because we stopped here and just said, make that biblical family your family, it's crushing. Right? We need the reality, the, the context of the covenant, that God has bound himself to you and called you his own. And saying, I'm going to teach you now, by grace, how to live with me. Right? And so just parents rest in this, and, and children. God, the best parent, the one who is wise, the one who wrote all these things, who knows what to say and when to say it, uh, what, what kind of discipline you need in that moment to help you change for the better, uh, did everything right, and the younger brother said to his father, give me my inheritance now. I wish you were dead, was basically what he said. And in the most astonishing act of parenting, this is the parable of the prodigal son from Luke 15, the father gives the younger son exactly what he wants, and he lets him go. He should have given him the rod of judgment, and instead he gave him what was his, 
And so if you picture this, the father's wealthy, all of his money is wrapped up in land, and I'll use some even numbers. Let's say the father has $9 million worth of land. The older brother would have gotten $6 million, two-thirds. It's good to be the oldest in the ancient world. The younger brother would have gotten $3 million. And so the father invests. This is a gracious investment. He just gives up $3 million. He shows grace rather than judgment waiting for the son to come to his senses. And that's God's parenting tool, to let us see that we need parented, uh, that, we, that being wise in our own eyes is not all that it cracked, it's cracked up to be because we get ourselves in trouble. This is the kindness of your heavenly father. He anxiously scans the horizon. He's waiting for his son to return. And when he sees you return, he's like, God, I need a parent. I need a father who will care for me. In compassion, he runs to him, he hugs him, he embraces him, and welcomes him as a son before he ever gets that apology out. This is costly grace. This is patient grace. We have to be patient. And it's painful. But this is how God works in our lives, to restrain the folly of our hearts. To get your attention with his kindness. And, it's, and that's what we're going to do this morning. God's trying to get your attention with the way he parents with the Lord's Supper. The father who gave his son, his only son, his beloved son, in love. Why? To make his father's house a refuge. To make it safe. For you to come as you are at the cost of the son who endured intense hostility. He was parented through suffering. But that's how it made him perfect on our, for us even to death on a cross. So that you might experience God's fatherly delight and also see that you still have foolishness in your heart, and I do too. See, ultimately what's going to make your... hear wisdom and also hear grace. Right, what will make your family a refuge that'll cultivate the friendship in your, your marriage and with your kids and kids with your parents, it's going to be grace. Because if you have God as your refuge, you have somebody outside of you to, to give you the resources you need to forgive and to move towards those that God has said, now live with them. This is for your good. So go and learn what it means that grace makes your family a refuge. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you just for the good news, uh, for your wisdom that you um, put us in families. You gave us people to love and to be loved. And so I pray, um, I just pray you would set us free from the idolatry of family. You would set us free from loving our family too much, but also set us free from, uh, from our sin, from our foolishness, that we might be willing to embrace your grace and then run toward your parenting and, and listen to your wisdom. Help us to bind your steadfast love around our necks, and would you write it by your spirit on the tablets of our hearts so that we might follow Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.